0: We're going international on today's episode of The Producer Podcast, as I sit down with Judy Groters, producer at Groters Productions, to talk about her producer journey and producing films internationally, such as Tortured for Christ and Sabina the Nazi Years. So without further ado, let's get started. Thank you for coming on the show today, Judy.
1: Thank you, Micah. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: I've heard you and your husband speak a little bit at the Christian Worldview Film Festival once or twice, Um, but for listeners that aren't familiar with you, maybe take a little bit to just tell how you got involved in film and producing projects.
1: Right. Well, great question. John and I um, have been married for a long time, but we've only worked together for the last 15, 20 years. So that gives you a little insight as to how old we are. We shared a workspace for a long time while I was doing involved in software development and consulting, and he started his business. And I, I agreed to occupy a space with him um, in order to help kind of move the, the startup business along from a business perspective. And so I was in proximity to production by being married to him and by sharing office space with him and, and by um, helping to build his business. Business from a business administration perspective, and then as a business manager, I began to make observations about how things were being done. And the first and most obvious thing was close production. We're a full production house, and um, so I remember seeing him as he was writing documentaries, and he had a note card system where he'd take a transcript, he'd get out his scissors, um, he'd he'd cut out quotes and write time code on and have his note cards and sort them all out. And I looked at what he was doing and I said, John, there's got to be a better way than you and scissors and tape to, to write your scripts. And, and so um, I very quickly whipped up a database for him. We imported with time code and built a database that changed his life and said, and and so suddenly he was, he, he took on this mode well, of where else can we find efficiencies and um, and so in post production, how we documented footage and metadata, and stored it and, and mined for it, and um, the the media that it was at his disposal digitally for writing scripts, and and then we moved into production planning and how can we do some things more efficiently there. So so my onboarding was far from traditional. With my STEM background, I, I take a look at what he was doing from an efficiency
0: perspective
1: mm-hmm. and and help him to to find ways and as his team grew, um, help them collectively to find ways to um, to become more efficient. So um I didn't by any means think of that as um, getting involved as a producer. I really was was involved more primarily in workflow efficiency and risk management. So for a long time, um, I really was just observing, giving notes, helping the team in any way that I could, while consulting or writing code, you know, mm-hmm. parallel to that. And that was in the early aughts. And um, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, our staff went from twenty four um, through. Really, it was attrition, but that that economic crash impacted yeah. our staff in such a way that. Um, you know, the work was drying up, people saw writing on the wall and said, okay, I'm gonna go figure something else out. Production companies were dropping like flies. And there was a question of, will we survive this? Um, and, and so as employees kind of moved on, um, we had more skill gaps than we had before. And so I started filling some of those skill gaps and learning, learning more of the tools. Um, the first feature film that we produced In 2009 was really the first time I I had wandered onto sets before, certainly observed, but it was really the first time that I um, was hands-on and working with the line producers. And and it was a product that um, we built, we funded. I was kind of immersed, trial by fire into production. And we had some young talent that was great, um, but didn't have the business acumen and by talent, I mean line producer and locations manager. And though I hadn't done those things, I was close enough to them that I was, I was giving a lot of notes. I was contributing because this was a case where we had a tremendous amount of risk tied up in this project. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the um, incentives in Michigan came into play, film incentives, which have since gone away. But um, so we actually had some Hollywood producers coming into town. Because we we're an established production facility and post-production facility, I was shoulder to shoulder as they would come and resource us as a facility, resource some of our talent, resource um, some of our equipment. And, and so I, I was in close proximity for a few years, like literally in my building, <laughs> literally, hey, we need your office. Yeah. We move into your office, like my office, my desk, my seat. Okay, oh, we use your computer. So that proximity actually um, gave me some insight that I didn't have leading up to that. So that was at the same time that we were, we were producing that first feature film or leading up to the production of that first feature film. So a lot of, a lot of learning by observing, um, a lot of hands-on, um, a lot of applying my experience um, in, in business consulting and business management that had been grown out of my um, software consulting Information system consulting career, so not the typical path, but it's a path that you know, intersections with a lot of Hollywood producers and low budget producers, medium budget producers. I haven't worked on anything super, super big yet, but um, you know, sharing space, observing, watching John for the years before. Um, so that's a really long answer, but um, I, I cannot um, cite a film school. I cannot cite a single mentor although there have been a lot of people that i've learned from along the way so anyway and and john of course was producing for years before i got involved Mm -hmm. so much of what i've learned certainly came from his experience i get the benefit of his experience in everything that i do almost everything sometimes i do things without it
0: yeah no that that's cool uh, how that all came about for you and i would be i would be curious before we jump into the main topic today um because i know a number of other filmmakers that work with their spouse in the industry like what's a piece of advice that you've learned over the years of not letting maybe the stress of the, the project you know affect your home life
1: that's a great question we have had the benefit because i didn't come up in movie making of working in our own lanes distinct from one another for quite a while before we started working together and I and I think that what that gave us was a, a certain degree of confidence in our where where our strengths are. We are much more complement to one another than we are like. I'm super analytical. I'm I'm an introvert, probably as strong an introvert as they come. And um we don't have overlap so much as we complement one another. He's an he's an extrovert. He, He figures out what he thinks by talking about it. I'd prefer not to talk about it until I've thought it through. Um, But having worked independently of one another, we both know how to get to work in our lanes and we recognize where we're gonna benefit from advice or guidance from the other. And and we know what to expect from one another. So working relationship-wise, it equipped us differently to not start out working together, mm-hmm. but but to, to grow our relative skills independent of one another. As we work together, um, I, I think in the early days, and, and I'm over this now, but in the early days, I, I tried compartmentalizing. I, when we're at work and we're fortunate to have a studio that is distinct from our home, when we're at work um let's talk about work and when we get home let's let's leave it at the door let's get in and talk about it well it's um you know at this point in our lives our, our kids are finally grown and gone um our our work has become our our offspring our next okay. our next version of offspring and so you know our our married life and our work life are far less distinct, I think, than they used to be. You come home and you're all in with the kids. we both coached kids' athletic teams. They're involved in music. We're very involved in our kids' lives. And once they finally both left for college, that distinction between work and home life didn't need to be Mm -hmm. so um, definitive. You know, if we were to go back and try to work the way we work now, when we had kids at home, that would be extremely challenging because- somebody needs to be attentive to them and on call for them at all times. And we couldn't work the way that we do now. If, if we also had that demand, we made the choice. John did a tremendous amount of traveling uh, when the kids were little and then he would come home like for births and that sort of thing. you arrived four hours before Jedediah was born um, from Nicaragua. So, wow, um, yeah. So I was prepared to do it by myself. And so, so that we made the choice together that, that, this was going to be our life. But my involvement in this aspect of our life together was very restrained while the kids were at home. So um, now we we take on um, sort of this mantra that wherever we are together in the world um, is where our home is. And so whether we're going overseas for six weeks, and then we come home for a week, and we head back overseas, um, when we're we're working together, it feels like home. It is home. Um, our, our marriage and our relationship with one another is the most important part of that connection, um, not where we are in the world. That doesn't mean that we're together 100% of the time when we're overseas. Now, there have been times when we're overseas extended, but I gotta hustle home to take care of business here in Michigan. And so I'll take a flight, in, in a, a cross-Atlantic flight, be home for a few days and then fly back, or sometimes we're apart for weeks at a time. Um, FaceTime and Zoom have made that easier. And and I think this is, too, where knowing our lanes comes in. Because e- even when we're overseas, um, we're keeping in t- touch with our post-production, our staff here in Michigan. Um, and a lot of times, when we're in Romania filming for an extended period of time a couple of years ago, we had a production office that was about a three-quarter mile walk from the hotel that we were staying in. And um, so um, between keeping in touch with our office and the work that I needed to do, which is a compliment, not the same work that he needs to do, um, I'm more of a night owl. He's an early morning person. And so I would be walking home from the production studio at about 4 a.m. and pass him on his way in. One day he he had left his key at the hotel and he got there and stones are tossing up at the window to to see if he can get my attention to come down and let him in the building. You know, we work independent of one another here in our facility. His, his office is here at the front of the building. Mine's at the back of the building. I think sharing a workspace, a literal workspace is not ideal for us. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he works very differently than I work. So um, again, back to that word compliment um, and, and understanding our roles. And the bonus for us is that um, there's never there's never gonna be a breakup. There's never gonna be a work breakup. There's never gonna be a relationship breakup. So when we get to the iron sharpens iron challenging part, sometimes it can get intense. Sometimes because of our different vantage points our different perspectives, um, we, we really need to duke it out. We try to keep that, we try not to do that in front of the children, literally, or the figurative children in this case. And um, we really want to have a unified front, and that was a parenting principle as well as a lead the team principle. Um, but there there are occasions where we see things very differently than one another. But at its best, we're sharpening one another. At its at its worst, it can degrade for a few minutes. But then you know there's there's no risk of of either one of us walking away. So we've got to solve this, and that's a real strong motivation to figure it out quickly and move on. We've had the privilege of working with so many great teachers and theologians and scientists and and, and the variety of work that we do. but one of the things that um, one of our mentors has um, impressed upon us mm-hmm. is the the relationship that the church has is to have with Christ is a way of putting God on display yeah and and he models that for us in such a way that um, we really believe that our marriages, our way to put God on display, the way we care for one another, the way we respect one another, but then to the world, to, to see Christ, not only, um, in the work that we put on the screen, but in how we live our lives and, and how we treat other people, particularly the way that we, um, um, care for one another is a really, really important part of putting God on display. So, um, and we as we work overseas, we go into cultures where marriage is um, not biblical. Marriage is not a respected institution, necessarily, not everywhere, certainly. but um, and of course, here domestically. so we are we are really trying to doing our best to set an example for the people with whom we work in how we care for one another and how how we are a unified front in how we work together and how we together really work hard to encourage other people, um, in their faith and in their relationships. So to the extent that, um, we are able to do that, we're grateful for that opportunity as well. And that becomes part of, part of our life's calling in our ministry.
0: Right. You've mentioned some stories from your different projects and travels, overseas uh, which is one of the things I wanted to to talk about with you today so I I guess like probably the best place to start is when you have a film project how do you decide is it worth traveling to this other country to film the project versus just trying to find locations or build sets here in the U.S. to do it?
1: Okay so this is a great way to talk about the compliment that John and I are. So I'm I'm super pragmatic and he's a visionary. And so um John, left to his own devices, is going to look for locations mm-hmm. and talent that will be the best for telling the story. And um anytime we're traveling to a new country, although I think that our confidence is growing, has certainly has grown. Um, but when when we were tasked with telling the story of Richard Wormbrand for tortured for Christ. We had these conversations, we could we could film it in a studio, do we build a in the US, do we build a set? Certainly we should be using American actors so that everybody can under, understand their dialogue. But we realized we we didn't have a sense of even what the set needed to look like. So we we recruited our producers who ultimately we partnered with we we kind of did a sweep of all the prospective producing partner resources in Romania and um, just, just to learn about what the possibilities were there just in case mm-hmm. we chose to film there which we probably wouldn't in our heads and also we really wanted to tour what the location should look like so if you're going to replicate them domestically right. we would know how to do that. So we kind of chalked it up to research, and we made a trip over there. We were not off the plane for four hours, and we were touring one of the prisons where Richard Wurmbrand was presumed to have been held at one time. John walked into this space, and he looked around, and not another moment of consideration did he give to filming domestically. We recognized that what felt like dungeons to us, these prisons that were underground that um, showed plenty of evidence of the people who had occupied and the oppression. So as a visionary, he walks in there as a storyteller. He's, he's just a tremendous storyteller. So he, he in visual, not just with words, um, but he walks in and he looks around and he says, okay, I guess we're shooting in Romania. What else do we need to see? and you know we were fortunate enough that the talent pool in Romania was tremendous they've got a huge theater community and um at that time the demands on their their film crew community were a little bit light and we were able to get access to top of their field crew coupled with um actors who i mean we had we had actors who had masters degrees in performance who were playing parts as extras for us because groups like ours coming in with the demand that they had more supply at that moment than their domestic production was drawing upon um, enabled us to get some really tremendous talent in the crew tremendous talent in the actor acting community we had so many choices for so many of the roles you know john often says the hardest. One of the hardest jobs is the casting director because they're the ones that have to call really qualified, talented people and tell them they didn't get the part. That just gives him agony saying no to talented, well-suited people. But he he had five really talented people who could have played the role of Sabina. And he 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 had to choose one. And we're so pleased that we chose Raluca. She was just a, such a tremendous choice. So in, in that case, he says, here's where we're shooting. Now, my job turn the tables. My job is to take this fixed budget within which we need to live and figure out how we're going to pull it off. And in the case of international production, it's the cost of filming, of course, but the logistics of Mm -hmm. and and choosing which which crew do we bring from the United States? Which crew do we source locally? And um, can we work inside of our budget to do so? One of the things we had to do for Tortured for Christ, and then again, really literally for everything that we do, is figure out how to find those efficiencies I was talking about in order to work inside. Now, we did have the benefit of the cost of labor. It's a little bit less in Romania. Um, But we also had a really ambitious goal for what we were filming. So one of the ways that we have developed working together, and John and I working together on this is a really important ingredient of how we pull this off. But at first glance, our Romanian producers looked at the "Tortured for Christ" screenplay, and I had already done the homework of breaking it down. But um, they looked at it and said, "Yeah, this is probably a 20-day shoot, 21, 2021." And I said, "Well, I've done my breakdown, and we've we've got some methods that I'm happy to share. But and there's a lot of leapfrogging going on, and there's tremendous preparation." They said, "We're going to do this in 14 days." you know, the, the AD is shaking his head and saying, no, 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 not possible. And the production manager is is thinking that I'm crazy. And these Americans think they know things, but they don't. And and so got to work, shoulder to shoulder. Um, Luigi and Christy and I put our heads together. I shared with them our, our plan and our approach. And I well well, may, maybe, maybe we can pull this off. We managed to shoot tortured for Christ in 14 days. Sabina so was a 2-hour film. We shot that one in 19 days. It was two seasons. I mean, we we did a lot of preparation and it's mm-hmm. the so it was a sort of script that others would look at and say no this is this is a 30 35 day thing. But with a lot of work and preparation we figured out to be much ways to be more efficient than is typical. And so the um We're getting into a topic you didn't ask about. Shoot overseas, shoot domestically. Regardless from my pragmatic opposite side of the table seat, my job is to provide the resources and equip the resources in order to pull off what we need to do while managing the risk of what if it rains, what if somebody gets sick, we're shooting Sabina in the middle of COVID. Um, well, we shot the we shot scenes from Sabina, and then we came home, and we're scheduledly back in May, and then a the lockdown occurred in between. Mm-hmm. So, so the the summer, what turned into autumn, scenes were were while the world was locked down. But you know, my job is to make sure that we don't run out of money, and that we schedule it, and that we crew it, and and that we work inside of a budget, um, and that we anticipate the challenges. Um, in such a way that we, and preparation is a big part of that. If if your preparation is really solid, and you've got a great base plan to work from, um, it's very much like I learned in business classes that you know the key to a good business plan is its flexibility. You got to know what it is, and and producing is is business at its core. Um, you you got to have a solid plan so that if your plan is suddenly altered that, you know, the consequences of that alteration and and you can adjust. And, and so we shoot overseas whenever the story calls for it. And um, rather than be shy, I don't think we very often have conversations, should we shoot this domestically overseas anymore? If the story is um, that originated in an overseas location, we're gonna do everything we can to get there. And if in the case, like uh, a North Korea story, we're literally not capable of getting there. We'll, we'll shoot it in South Korea and get as close as we can. Um, we told a Northern Nigeria story um, last year that was um, Northern Nigeria is very hostile toward Christians. So rather than mm-hmm. shooting Northern Nigeria, we shot Northern Uganda, which is kind of on the same latitude as okay. Northern Nigeria. So in terms of um, the, the scenery, it looked the same, although we had to make adjustments because the the uh, wardrobe of a Northern Nigerian would be very different than that of a Northern Ugandan. Mm-hmm. So we made sure that we brought an art direction that had a clear understanding of those, the differences between what we would see in Nigeria and Uganda. And we worked pretty hard to make sure that we got those details right. But we're pretty committed to getting as close to the locations. This summer, we were in Colombia. And then um, the story is the story of a red zone. Um, we got out of the not red zone and into an area that was kind of a pink zone that called for a lot of security, but we never crossed the line into the red zone. But it looked very much like it was. So rather than have the debate anymore, we just really um, start with the expectation that we're going to get as close to the place where the story happened. and we'll. And once we find it, then we got to figure out how to compress our production plan into our budget.
0: Yeah. That's always the challenge. (laughs) Right. So you did mention uh, the research trip you did over scouting. Very quickly turned
1: into a scout trip.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm just like curious what, when you are going to like a new country for the first time on a film project, what things are you researching?
1: I don't know how we would have done this 15 years ago. Um, But but for me, the first and, and many times with the help of my staff, so I have to make sure I recognize their role in this. But um, we just start combing the internet for um, production resources, and not limiting ourselves to the obvious ones, mm-hmm. um, because we're we're looking for either a fixer who is aware of the resources, if not a producer who has experience. And what what we found in a lot of cases is that. Um, the, the, the one that is the most valuable to us is often the one who is most aware of the resources. And vetting, because they'll all say they have access to everything that we could ever want or need. Yeah. But one of the first litmus tests is responsiveness and communication skills. And um, no matter how um, talented they are, how many people they know, if they don't respond relatively quickly, um, over over time with multiple touch points. Um, if they're hard to get a hold of, they take days to call back, well, they, they eliminate themselves pretty quickly. And then we move into um, Zoom meetings and start talking about locations. And what we what we learned pretty quickly is that some of them are very much aware of their locations that they they might have access to or that they can think of. And others are well, you know, hire us and we'll go take pictures of places that we think might work. Well, mm-hmm. you know, anybody with experience should have a general sense of where they can get to. Now that said, there are several cases where um, I have literally used Google Earth to zero in on a place where that looks like something that we need. So, for example, um, and this didn't really impact our choosing the fixer, but when we are filming Sabina. Right after the titles, there's a serpentine road. Okay. Where Sabina and her uncle are driving, and there's a Romanian flag that we drive past to sort of establish those characters and and where we are. We're in Romania with young Sabina, and she's she's got a little bit of a history that we hear about in their conversation. I think we probably visited five or six places around the country that um, had serpentine roads, and and none of them really fit the bill. There was too much modern in the in the shot. There was, it wasn't serpentine enough, and it wasn't logistically possible to do what we wanted to do there. And so it's a rule we have a driver with us when we're on these scout trips. But this was an occasion where we'd been there. This was our second scout tip trip, and John just wasn't happy with that serpentine road. It was middle of the night, it was probably three or four in the morning, and he'd gone to bed a little bit disappointed. We hadn't found the location yet. And um, time was running out. So I got on Google Earth and I literally started zooming in on mountainous roads that were serpentine. And I found one that I thought was really cool. (laughs) And I zoomed in as tight as I could. And then I got online and I rented a car from the airport, which was an Uber ride away. And I woke John up at about five o'clock and I said, John... And, and this was the day off, the driver had the day off, the, the, the producers were taking the day, everybody had the day off. So this is just me saying, John, let's go after this. We got in the car about three hours away, we find this road and it's on the nose for what John's looking for. So that's a case where I found now that gave me confidence that even in some of these countries where I have no idea logistically what it will take to get there. Um, when we filmed in Colombia this summer, um, we were we were looking for a particular kind of um, towns that had a lot of docks and docks coming to hose, houses, right. villages, villages that that were fairly distinctive looking. And from all of the people that we had talked to, we hadn't settled in on our fixer yet. I had a picture of what we wanted to do just from a, a point of reference, didn't know where it was, um, really more description than picture. So the picture was in our minds and they weren't delivering we, we never saw a picture of the location that we thought would suit us. And, and so we were getting kind of disappointed. Nobody's going to be able to deliver a location to tell a story that is really foundational. And so once again, I'm on Google and I'm on Google Earth and I'm zooming in on, on shores. And I'm literally sort of, it's kind of like rotoscoping, but on Google Earth, rotoscoping the, the uh, all the water's edges and I spotted something that looked amazing and then there's a town and then I Google the town and then I get shots. And, um, I sent these to one of our fixers. I said, Oh, we know who, where that is. And they literally flew. One of their people flew to the closest city, took a long boat ride, met a guy who could get them into this village. That was a, um, I call them water villages. Mm-hmm. and get us into this village and it's a kind of village that's closed off so you can't get in there unless you know somebody otherwise you know they're they're stopping you at the edge and they're suspicious and you you're not welcome here right. but they were very eager to work with us they went to the trouble of finding this location and you know ob- obviously they were hired they did the the research and the homework to prove to us that they could get us into a place that would please us and from there it was just a you know, really, really great relationship. So for us, finding a production partner who knows how to navigate access to locations that suit our story and goes beyond just mailing it in. And these are all the places that most people film will take you there. Mm-hmm. Those producers are really easy to find. The producer who's going to go the extra mile to find locations that are distinctive and um, are not necessarily easy to access, but have the fortitude to go after them are usually the ones that you know win the day for us.
0: Since you were kind of talking there about some of your vetting process um, when you're trying to find like a local fixer or producer, um, i like to spring off of that and talk just like crew in general. Um, when you're going overseas, how do you decide these are positions that we can hire locals versus... This is somebody that we want to bring this guy from the States that like we know and trust on for the project.
1: The things that we cannot live without are um, beautiful pictures through great glass and solid usable audio. John cares tremendously about audio as any director should for that reason we bring our DP, we bring our cameras and lenses, we bring field audio and of course data management. but what we figure is crew wise if we have director DP field audio, the rest we can figure out if we have if, if we don't get pros and we don't always get pros mm-hmm. but we we can figure it out. Now we have been, Really fortunate to find our ways to um, professional grade talent in most places that we go. Every once in a while, not so much. But um, since you asked about crew, talent aside, if, if we can get that now. Now, next after that, top of list are art director and casting. And art's tough to export. Um, not just the stuff that you need to take, but but understanding what is um, culturally appropriate right. and how to resource that, whether it's building things or shopping secondhand or and, and even finding the talent to do those things. So art directors extremely high on the list next. we find that we, we rely on domestic for that. Um, but we work really hard to make sure we get it right. And um, the other sort of parallel and as important is casting. And John will often say um, the casting director is is the person that he bonds with first because getting okay. getting some talent and particularly in the key roles. Um, and and then even in in cases where um, it's tough to cast those key roles, modifying the script to Meet the actor where the actor is capable of performing occasionally happens. That's particularly challenging when we're working with children. Uh, Last year's Northern Nigeria story that we produced for um, the International Day of Prayer for the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, a young actress played a role that was enhanced because she was so talented. I just wanted to continue to feature her more and more um but we particularly with children we can't always count on that and sometimes even with adults so depending on the project we can increase or diminish on-screen dialogue um as needed to support the project if we can't find the talent but to the greatest extent we found some really great talent In, in in columbia this summer um one of the featured actors is a soap opera star in columbia that everybody knows. And he, he came and he, he said, yeah, I want to audition for this part. Of course I, you know, I'm on soap opera all day. I want to do something meaningful. It turned out he was a believer, but he doesn't have the opportunity to perform for projects that, um, that put God on display. So he was just, he was thrilled to do it. And he was, he was tremendous. And, And he's well known as an actor because he's just extremely talented and one of the things that we've found is really valuable for recruiting cast and crew is um, sharing early on with our prospective production partners work that we've done before that's in a similar vein.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and, and when they see the quality of work that we're um, proposing to produce with them, we find that they're typically very eager not only to enlist talented crew and cast members, um, but to share the project with, with professionals who, want, who, who strive. So in other words, everybody wants to do work they can be proud of. So when we share examples of our work that they are impressed with qualitatively, they're pretty quick to want to get on board with a project that will be on par qualitatively. And and I think that once we got a few projects under our belt that we could share, that that has really helped.
0: What would be a piece of advice you'd give to somebody that's getting ready to do their first film in a new country?
1: The recruiting of and vetting of your production partners is going to be foundational to your success. Spend a lot of time putting a lot of options on the table and then invest equal or more time in getting to know them. That's why I said earlier, I don't know how we would have done this 15 years ago because um, even if there was Google 15 years ago, taking for granted that resources are findable overseas Mm -hmm. resources are going to be easily findable. Now, most countries will have a film directory but not everybody who's who's a solid candidate shows up in that film directory. So just really getting creative and trying to find them and then vetting them um, has been foundational to our work. The other thing is I'm also just super hands-on with logistics. I find that, you know, if I rely on the domestics exclusively to handle logistics for us, we'll get treated like tourists and. Pay top dollar to stay at resorts. We don't need resorts. Yeah. We don't need um and they'll run us big buses. Nope, nope, nope. And and so I am I am consistently working to scale back the stuff that doesn't show up on the screen. They want to take care of us. So the instincts are good, but um I by the time we're talking ground transportation and um, other accommodations, I will have done my homework, understand what the cost of living is, understand what local wages should be. When they hear Americans are coming, they're they're really not to a location, but they, they tend to wanna get paid, even if their cost of living is like 150th of the United States. I get quotes that show USA union scale for all the crew positions, hey, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I've done my homework. I know that this is not. And yeah. I want I want to care for them, but we can't afford to pay USA Union scale in a third world country and accomplish what we need to accomplish. So gently navigating um, how much to pay the crew so they they feel valued enough to perform to the level we need them to perform. Treating them extremely well on set, we don't set ourselves apart. You know, sometimes, well, here's the the producers' tent, and here's the producers' catering, and every, everybody else is eating slop. Right. We don't work that way. We're in Korea. We um we'd go into the catering tent, and um I like to mix it up and sit with and meet with other people, meet people, and I would um you know without giving a second thought um. Both John and I would get our respective food and find a table with somebody we'd never eaten with before. What I found out was that culturally, that was in, that was such an exception to how they live. The Koreans, you don't even look anybody in the eye who is above your stature or above your pay grade or above. So when I sat down at the table with the makeup girls, and that's what they call themselves, so that was not a condescend, but I'm, I'm that's how they're listed on the call sheet, makeup girls. So I, I I sit at lunch with the makeup girls and ask them their names and they just got all giggly, because because producers don't sit with right. crew members. And um, so you know, speaking of how how we care for that to us, that's very natural and expected. But to them, it it really changed the perspective. And one of those girls, and and this changed every day. We mixed it up. Um, but just bringing water to the gaffer who's carrying around five hundred pounds on his back. Um, not like collectively 500 pounds, but, um, bringing water to him. And he looks at me with a, and, and by the end of that shoot, um, he gave me the biggest hug and he learned how to say in English, I love you. Um, and, and because I, the simple gesture of, of giving him water. Um, but you know, one of those makeup girls ended up coming to the United States, staying with us for a while. She enrolled in makeup school in Hollywood, and we still stay in touch with her. But um, it changes their perspective when they see someone with particularly a Christ-centered worldview and are their midst and um, treat them differently than they've been treated before. And um, we have had the pleasure of working in a lot of places and I believe without exception, everybody we've worked with will be very happy to work with us again. We have we have relationships with people, crew members all over the world. my WhatsApp is busy from four corners of the earth almost every day. I bet. For that reason. Yeah. Really fun.
0: These last two questions um, don't necessarily have to relate to producing in other countries. They they can be more just film in general. Um, the yeah. first one is what advice or what have you learned with dealing with failure in this industry?
1: Own it and learn from it. Don't waste it. It's easy to waste yeah, I, I think for me in particular, it's easy to um let the shame of such a thing um burden me. There's a lot of freedom and and um to the degree it it's necessary to to confess it and own it and mm-hmm. and um and in many cases, pay whatever penance, you know, God doesn't demand that of me. Um, but Whomever I have failed deserves it from me. Um, And some people are really graceful about it. Others, not so much. But I have to remember that I'm a witness for Christ. If my shame gets in the way of my witness, then I'm quadrupling down on the failure. And so... You know, believing that whatever the consequence is serves the kingdom in the greater sense, I need just own it and be the person of integrity that God calls me to be, and ideally become better for the kingdom and better for whatever project or next mm-hmm. project. You know, in, in this work that we're doing, mm-hmm. there's no cap on growth. There's no place where we're going to be able to say, okay, we got this figured out. Um, So failure is inevitable, at least from our vantage point. And, um, and, you know, everything I just said, um, with the belief that I'm not done learning, I'm not done failing. um, We've got a lot more growing to do professionally, but certainly spiritually. So let's embrace Um, The opportunities to continue to learn and grow, not exempting those opportunities that grow out of our failures.
0: I like that. That's really good. So then my final question for you is just what's one piece of advice you'd give to somebody that's just getting started as a producer in this industry?
1: Without the expectation of compensation, find your way into the presence of those who are doing good work for the right reasons. By the right reasons, what I mean is um, fulfilling a kingdom purpose. John right now it's out at AFM at the American Film Market. And he had a gap of a few hours yesterday. He gave me a call and he said, I'm not sure what to do with myself for the next couple hours. And I looked at the workbook and I said, well, there are a couple of workshops, go to this workshop. And he said, thanks for giving me that advice at the end of the day, he said, but what I what I recognize is that virtually everything that's going on at AFM right now is driven by a worldview that is the utter opposite of ours. When we talk about and we think about what we're doing, the, the biblical metaphor is throwing our stones. Um, we have stones to throw in this life. And those stones, in our case, are, are making moving pictures, um, or at least that's a big part of it. It's not exclusively that. All right. But if if we start using our stones to promote a worldview that does not glorify God, as John is observing in his AFM workshop yesterday afternoon, then, then our work will lack purpose. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and have spent it doing other anything other than fulfilling the purpose to which God has called us. So find mentors who share your worldview, who ascribe to continual growth as professionals, um, who set the bar high and observe and learn from them and be proactive learners, not passive learners. One of the things that I love about Christian worldview is Mm -hmm. the leadership is so committed to Christ and to working to ensure that that commitment is exemplified in their work. That I, I really think that the relationships we form in that context and finding mentorship there or at events or organizations or networks that are comparable is important. Um, Those mentors will help us keep ourselves on the right track. And to the extent that we can find ourselves in proximity to them, even as volunteers, um, is, is going to be advantageous to learning the profession as well as to staying on track with the importance of maintaining a commitment to Christ and and um, living in a community that shares the worldview. So form those relationships, find mentors, put yourself in proximity to them and strive to become exceptionally competent in terms of the skills that are needed to do the job well.
0: On that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, this episode of the show. Uh, Thank thank you you so much again for taking the time to come on.
1: You're very welcome. It's been fun to get to know you.
0: You as Uh, well. Thanks. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of The Producer Podcast. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to The Producer Podcast, and thanks for listening.